Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation Certified Instructor and Resiliency Expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the many and very challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and tall, T-A-L-L dot com. Our co-host for today is my usual sidekick these days, my colleague at TechBlocks, Peter Goral. Peter, introduce yourself uh, in TechBlocks before I uh, introduce the amazing Frank Bush. Thanks very much, Tom, for having me on the show again and for allowing TechBlocks to uh, sponsor the interview. Yes, my name is Peter Goral. I'm Vice President of Business Development and Client Relations here at TechBlocks. And at TechBlocks, it's our mission through a convergence of consulting, creativity, and technology to serve small, medium, and enterprise companies by helping them optimize their business in the digital world. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to Frank, myself, having uh, met him a, a few months ago at the, uh, the book fair that was here in Toronto. So, uh, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We met Frank. I met Frank as well. Frank Christopher Bush is a member of the... Oh, man. Frank. And Nichisawea C. Sorry about that. Frank Bush is a member of the Cree Nation in northern Manitoba and now lives and works on the West Bank First Nation. He has spent his career life working with First Nations in the financial and legal sectors, visiting over 200 First Nations and Métis communities across Canada and the U.S. He wrote his debut fiction novel, Grey Eyes, in response to the message he received over and over from residential school survivors I just want my culture back. Welcome to the show today, Frank. Oh, thanks, Tansay. Thank you for having me, Tom. I uh, was going to try and pronounce the uh, name of the uh, Cree Nation uh, that you are a member of, but uh, <laughs> yeah. my it's, tongue it's a bit just of a doesn't work. The... <laughs> yeah, what is it? Yeah, it actually took me some time to learn how to say it. It's the uh, Nichisawayasi Cree Nation, and what that means is the place where three rivers meet. Oh, yeah, so okay. Just kinda, that's kind of how we uh, named most of our places in the Cree Territory as a description of, of, of what the, I guess, uh, topographical features were so people would kind of know where to find it. You're almost more giving directions than, than saying a name. Neat. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, Peter, uh, why don't you start off with the questions uh, for our friend? Yeah, thanks very much. Well, interesting. Uh, we Actually, uh, I think, my memory serves me correct, Frank. We we bumped into you by virtue of a, a reach out to your to an organization actually that you work with, the, where you're actually a fine you're actually a finance guy for a company. So yes. I, I, it's kind of unique, you know, that uh, this you, you're primarily a finance guy, but all of a sudden uh, I find that you're, you're a much more interesting individual and. <laughs> and <laughs> That, you know, they're your typical CA. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that's not a that's not a diminishing point at all. But the reality is, you know, you, you're not the typical you're not the typical guy that we bumped into. You know, that's uh, in fact you're you're a writer. 
and a talented writer at that. Like, I mean, how did how did you even decide to to sort of expand yourself into that space? Well, you know, it was kind of really strange, and I, I kind of recall the first conversation I had with my uh, editor, uh, Sandra McIntyre, when I started. I told her, listen, I'm a pretty good writer for an accountant, is kind of what I told her immediately, right? So, uh, but, but basically what had happened is um, there was the uh, Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Uh, you know, it uh, happened, I guess, geez, over the... Really, over the last 15 years, uh, it's mm-hmm. taken quite some time, but uh, primarily in about 2006, 2007, um, you know, this uh, settlement agreement was going to be a huge undertaking, and basically what was needed was uh, people, um, First Nations people, who had some, you know, I guess kind of business administration or accounting skills to help, uh, you know, in the administrative um process of the settlement agreement. So I actually got hired on uh, by a law firm in Winnipeg uh, just to set up like, uh, you know, I guess a department, uh, you know, to develop a staff and train them and find out what the needs were. And uh, somewhere along the line, I ended up uh, doing a lot of the interviewing, the initial interviewing of residential school survivors in First Nations communities Uh all across Canada. So uh, yeah, I, I heard stories from some of these survivors that would absolutely make your, you know, curl your hair, and yeah. um, I, I think the writing, in a way, for me, uh, because I would interview them and then I would write their stories, uh, and I had to write it in such a way that it would work for the lawyers, you know, more factual, but also right. the survivors. The survivors weren't as interested in the facts of their case as they were of trying to get the um, the feeling across. You know, they wanted yes. people to. Uh, kind of understand on an emotional level what it felt like to live through right. such a traumatic experience. And so you had to kind of balance those two needs. And so, uh, you know, I guess that's kind of where my writing skills were honed a bit. Um, now, all the while, I was almost taking on, a, I guess, a, a second-hand trauma, you know, just hearing these stories and you'd start having nightmares about, you know, your childhood or anything that was vaguely familiar or that you were in right. residential school and that. And, uh, you know, I started writing, I guess, almost uh, therapeutically to to help kind of process some of these uh, feelings and the secondhand trauma that I was picking up. Wow, that's that's incredible. And, you know, I, we, had, we actually had a, an, another chap on the other day, and he talked about, you know, he says, I'm a writer. He says, I owe it for – I owe it to people to – to you know to script out their stories and i think i think it seems to me that that's exactly what you're doing i mean and and uh, uh there must have been quite a push and pull between putting the emotion that the individual wants kind of written down for legacy purposes and the fact that you know you had to bring some order to it for uh for the for the value of the job that you were doing so there must have been a, a real challenge to disseminate what you could actually write yeah and you know what in in certain cases too uh you know sitting with the lawyers um they would explain how communicating certain parts of a person's stories could actually um you know damage uh, a claimant's uh case you know right. uh, reduce the uh, the settlement dollars that they would receive and I was always amazed by how many of the survivors would say, I don't care about the money. I, I want to be heard. I want people to know what I went through. Um, right. So, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I mean, the, the settlement really just focused on incidences of physical and sexual abuse. Um, right. But a lot of times it was really the day-to-day just lack of love, lack, lack of caring that really haunted these these uh, residential school survivors. And so some of the instances of uh 
you know, um, you know, the, the more traumatic or psychological abuse, they they really uh, had to get it off their chest in order to kind of heal and move on, you know. And yeah. I was just amazed by their resiliency that people could survive this, you know, that sort of trauma and still go on to, in, in most cases or in many cases, to lead, you know, fairly normal or productive lives. Yeah. Wow. wow. Frank, you are. Uh... You are extremely well-spoken and obviously passionate as a writer. And I, like, I took accounting for four years. I worked for my dad for three years and pouring over numbers. And, oh, my gosh, I thought my brain was going to explode a little bit boring. I just can't picture you pouring over an Excel spreadsheet when you're so well-spoken. We saw you speak at the Toronto International Book Fair. You have an amazing voice for radio and uh uh, just amazing speaking voice and so uh, so well spoken. Is it hard for you to spend your day pouring over numbers when you're? It seems like your passion and your your purpose is more your writing and you're sharing the stories of uh, people in your community. Uh, I don't know. It's you know it's kind of strange. Um, I guess I have uh, I guess two sides to my personality. Uh, you know, my, you know, I would like say because I'm I'm a Gemini. I guess is one way to do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, my my wife uh, sometimes uses the word bipolar. I don't know if that <laughs> that might be uh, a little that's extreme. That's something totally but, different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, that's but another show. A, there's definitely a, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a bit of a multiple personality thing happens. So I do have kind of this. Uh, introverted accountant side and then this kind of more um extroverted artistic side so just uh and, the, and when when the two meet that's kind of where it gets really interesting you know because I, I think i have more of a businessy side and more of a i guess charitable side and i think a lot of us are like that especially in the business community where you know right. we, we don't want to feel like our our work is really just to produce bottom line numbers as well uh, some of our business people are are some of the most um charitable i think in the country you know that's always been my experience so um, I think many of us have those two sides, but how they how they apply or how we choose to apply them is, uh, you know, actually just before I got on the phone with you, I was pouring over a few financial statements here this morning uh, from uh, First Nations uh, in different parts of Canada and trying to kind of help them to meet some of their goals. Um, so, yeah, and, and actually it was um, part of my accounting side, I think, that uh, got me to uh, complete the book uh, because I don't think my artistic side ever would have, you know, kind of wrapped it up, right? But uh, mm-hmm. I think my my more, um, I guess, diligent side said, okay, well, set these goals, set these deadlines, you know, uh, produce so much. Uh, like the word count function in, uh, in Word for me was really important. Uh, I didn't want to get up until I'd written at least 3,000 words, you know, things like that. So, right. Right. Um, wow. so, yeah, there's these two conversations kind of go on in my head, and it's, it's usually the <laughs> diligent accountant that keeps the artist, <laughs> you know, working in that, right? So. Yeah, so mild, mild-mannered accountant by day, and <laughs> yes. then you go, go into the phone booth and change into super writer. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Frank, the book's fiction, right? Yes. Yes, but it's designed to illuminate some r- real stories. Yes, yeah, I, I, I guess i describe it as... Um, kind of historical fiction. Uh, so it's based on almost a, a very undocumented history of the uh, First Nations community, especially in the Cree territory where I come from. And uh, a lot of our history was uh, passed down through the oral tradition 
of kind of story storytelling in that um and so that's kind of where a, a lot of it comes from is some of those uh aspects or stories that I've heard growing up um right. and some of the legends uh especially uh, with regards to um you know I guess special people or magical people and that you use in the whole the, the whole sense of uh having gray eyes right to right, distinguish right. these people right. um so that that's kind of what I what I use. Uh, I guess you could also call it charisma. So when I when I think of I guess special ability or magic, I I, I don't always necessarily think of it in the traditional um, sense that you would have out of literature. You know, with you know magic wands and that sort of thing. But I, I think we've all met people in our lives who have a certain magic about them. You know, they just have this uh, charisma or something that kind of draws yeah. you to them and makes you want to hear what they they have to say. Yeah. Um, so just kind of focusing on on people like that, uh, you know, that uh, that I've had the good fortune to meet or or read, uh, you know, that's kind of who I I, I focused on yeah. to to bring that part to life. Well, let me be the first to say that I think you yourself are one of those magical people. Oh, that's for oh, thank sure. you. <laughs> no, I I think it takes you know the old adage it takes one to know one, yes. and I think for 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 you to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm an artist myself. I paint, but uh, as you know, but I'm just thinking about the concepts, you know, that are described in the book, and the way you've passed through like this the Grey Eyes journey, and the kind of upheaval and everything that you know that Grey Eyes had to deal with, and I, I'm just thinking that wow, you know, that's more than imagination. That's a real understanding of. Of, of some of the stories that you heard. And uh, just wondering, uh, have you had much feedback from the people that you've written about? Have, have they read this book? Uh, what, kind of, you know, what kind of response have they given you? Uh, I think uh, some of them have. Uh, I've gotten a little bit of feedback uh, in that in in the community, and especially in my my home community, because uh, when I wrote the story, I wrote it to take place in um, in in my home community of Nichisawayasi, and uh, so the response has actually been very positive and overwhelming from from the community from from a variety of. Uh, age groups as well. I know they're they're studying the book right now in the classroom uh on on the reserve. And uh but some of the older people and the residential school survivors uh you know many of them have written it as well and uh everything's been very positive um right. that I've heard so far from from my community. Uh you know there's there's people who uh, you know know some of the places that I'm referring to in the book, right. you know, the geography right. and that. Um, some of the experiences, the activities of the uh, the villagers, and that in the in the novel, the people are familiar with doing some of those activities. Um, you know, uh, there, there's one particular case where uh, somebody uh, kills a moose, and the, the community comes together, or the family comes mm-hmm. together to to go through all this activity of um, cleaning and preparing the moose, and that, and, and uh, right. you know, that's the, it's done in a way that we've we've done from since time immemorial. So right. uh, most of that has been very positive. Um, just like any other First Nation in Canada, there is a, I get a, a bit a bit of religious turmoil that occurs in every community, you know, especially between Christianity and the traditional um, First Nation spirituality. Sometimes they're very much at odds. So I have received some criticism, I guess, from the Christian side, who says, you know, these are pagan ways that should be forgotten, <laughs> you know, not oh really, not, yeah, wow. so not read, not written about in a book where people relearn them or want to follow them or something, right? So. Um, so and so that that part can be a little uh, I guess disappointing at times, but I mean I I just feel that everybody is really entitled to their own opinion, and 
I, I, especially, I mean, religion is one of those topics that you really don't want to get into in polite company, yeah. really. So, no, for yeah, sure. so to each his own yeah. is kind of what I think, right? And um, <laughs> But I've, I've written what I've written based on what I've learned and what I know and wanting to share it with you know, like-minded people or people who are at least open to, to hearing it. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, I think in, in everything you do in life, you're going to get mixed reactions from other people. But um, I'm, I'm pretty clear on who I wrote it for, and I can almost... Uh, narrow down the exact individual who, who who said to me, I think I was in Cross Lake, Manitoba, interviewing survivors, and there was one particular individual in his 80s, and, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, I don't know if I was you know, starting to get a little bit uh, burnt out from the whole process, but I asked him, what, you know, what can be done, you know, to uh, help us to, uh, you know, get past the, the residential school era? You know, what is it that survivors need in order to uh, to, to kind of move forward? And he stopped and he said, you know, that was, it was through a Cree interpreter, and he said that's a very powerful question. And he just sat for about five minutes, you know, total silence, not saying anything. Right. It just seemed like an eternity. And then he just took a breath and said, never let it happen again. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, so the only way I could think to do that would be to, to share it, you know, to get it yeah. out there. And there's there's a lot that's been uh, written on the residential school experience and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of works out there. Uh, Monique Gray in her book Tilly uh, talked about her residential school experience and the life that came afterwards. Uh, Bev mm. Teller, she wrote a book called They Called Me Number One. Yes. Um, I believe she was also nominated for the Burt Award there. Yeah. But uh, so, so those survivors have told their story of what happened. So I think that that's been done. Uh, what I wanted to do was to show what a life would look like outside of, you know, the colonial assimilation policy where, uh, you know, a First Nation person was able to grow up in the traditional sense, you know, without being told that their culture is inferior or, you know, inadequate or whatever it might have been and just kind of grow up as they are. And I think that was something, you know, that resonated with survivors, and I'd heard that a little bit too, as they wish they could have just grown up, you know, with their ancestors or, you know, in their Mm -hmm. traditional community and never having been taken away, you know. So I wanted to kind of give that back to them, what that experience might have looked like. And, uh, and I think uh, a lot of them really that resonated yeah. with a lot of them. Yeah. I shared uh, Monique's uh, video with uh, the TED Talk video with uh, yes. with Tom. I think you might have posted it on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did post it. Yeah, I, always, I, I share was, a lot of their stuff there. I, I follow a lot God, of the... Incredible. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, uh, that really touched me in that. So, and Monique's a really great speaker, and she was really kind enough when I did my book tour last October. Um, she invited me to Victoria, where she lives, and we actually did a joint reading in a local community center. And it was, uh Yeah, that was quite wonderful that she that she would uh, take time to do that. And I, I think that might be something that's uh, a little unique in the Aboriginal community, where you can actually appro- you know, approach a well-known or famous author and say, hey, you want yep. to join me at some, you know, downtown inner city community center, <laughs> you know, do this uh, kind of more charitable activity. And they're like, yeah, great, I'd love yeah. to, you know. The, you know, the real value in listening to Monique, you could see, you could hear, like she, she, it came off like, it it rolled off her tongue like water off a duck's back. It oh, was yes. incredible. I mean, that person lived that situation to the fullest, right? They, there was no no ifs, ands, or buts. She was not yep. making a not making a single thing up. I, I love the authenticity of that woman. It was amazing. 
Oh yeah, she's certainly um, you know she's kind of really walked the path and she walks the walk, you know. So she uh, and she travels in the uh, community uh, doing speaking engagements and sharing stories of resiliency and that and uh, sharing her experience and and uh, she does like workshops and seminars as well, helping other people who've lived through similar trauma, whether it's the residential school or you know just growing up. Uh, in, in maybe an abusive situation or people who have struggled with addiction. And, uh, you know, she kind of speaks basically on her experience, so it's very non-judgmental. Yeah. And just yeah. the work that she does in the community, it's it's really, yeah, you know, in my mind, is very kind of, um, you know, game-changing to, to kind of yeah. restore people who who, uh, who feel that they've been broken and, and kind of making them whole again. And she's really out there doing that healing work. Brilliant. Amazing. Now, Frank... Uh, as a Christian, I gotta apologize for some of my Christian friends. We would like to trade them to another team. Some of these guys, I don't think that they're not happy unless they're complaining or talking about something they don't like. And we would just love to ship them to some other religion or uh, glue their mouths shut. Uh, well, they forgot. They forgot all the right, references. So. They forget all the references to love in the Bible. They're more on the hating side. And uh, so now uh, my question, um, and I'm intrigued by this, uh, I'm a Caucasian Canadian. I don't think anyone in my generations has ever been born outside of Canada. I've never been discriminated against for anything. I'm like just a... And you know, everyone wants to be the Caucasian or so many people. And so I'm wondering... Was the Canadian publishing industry for for a First Nations person, was that a benefit to you? Like, oh, well, we got to write this book, you know, there's so few of them, and a good story, or did you feel any prejudice or any discrimination against uh, yourself and what you were writing about from the Canadian publishing industry? Well, yeah, and, and actually that's kind of what uh, triggered the whole writing thing uh, for me is I was actually um, approached by a publisher who had heard that I had uh, interviewed, uh, you know, 800-plus survivors face-to-face. And uh, what this particular publisher was looking for was they wanted, um, you know, the worst possible abuse stories kind of amalgamated into into one work uh, so that people could see exactly how bad the residential school system was you know they wanted very graphic and very detailed you know abuse especially sexual abuse stories and uh cataloged and that and um and and I turned them away and I said I mean that that's a really bad idea because uh first of all it's not my, those weren't my stories to tell um you know those people who shared their story with me uh you know were doing it uh because of the settlement agreement and they weren't it wasn't something they wanted to impart on me to teach me something it was something that they were almost legally required to do in order to uh to 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 receive their settlements um the other thing being that the people reading the book i think you'd be doing them a bit of a disservice because um i didn't see where you know some of our aspects of forgiveness or um you know uh, reconciliation came into effect uh, all it did was continue to perpetuate the whose fault is it scenario and I, I don't think anybody moves forward on that, whether, you know, you know, European Canadians or Native Canadians. Um, it really didn't take us in any good direction. 
so when I wrote my book, it was really about kind of sharing, like, look, this is kind of some of the history that we lost, you know, just the concept that there were things happening in North America before Christopher Columbus got lost, right? Um, just be able to just be able to tell some of those stories or give an idea of what uh, what our you know life and culture was like. Um, you know, uh, I think we've as Canadians have uh, you know been taught through our public school systems that the um, First Nations culture and way of life had no value. You know, because there you know was anti progress. You know, there was no machinery. There was no this or that. You know. Uh, now we're taking a look all, uh, around at what we've done to our environment, and a lot of people are shaking their heads saying, well, you know, maybe we should have been thinking about more sustainable models, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and I think that's something that I look at as, well, how do, you, how do you bring those, you know, those two competing belief systems together? So uh, when I started looking for a publisher, I kind of had that in mind, is that I wanted uh, a publisher, um, you know, known for having, I guess, a... Uh, socially progressive uh, viewpoints and published works. And so when I came across Fernwood uh, and Roseway, uh, Roseway is an imprint of Fernwood, uh, they, were, they were very progressive. They had a lot of uh, very socially oriented uh, works in that. And, and it was a bit of a conflict because I, I think I am a businessman at heart. I mean, I do have uh, quite a few, I guess, right-leaning <laughs> political tendencies and whatnot. Um, but I knew that the kind of work I was doing was more humanitarian-oriented. Uh, and, and so they publish a lot of works, uh, you know, for, you know, various cultural groups in Canada, as well as the, uh, you know, um, I guess, uh, you know, alternative lifestyles uh, in Canada as well. So so that was very different. But well, what I came across in the publishing industry as a whole is that it really didn't seem focused on the business end of, 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 uh, of books. I mean, there was very little emphasis and focus on how to sell books. So that was something I kind of came across with a lot of the um, publishers as well. How are we planning to sell the books? And what they all seemed wanted to do was to get a grant, you know, from the you know uh, Canada Council uh, or something like that, right? And uh, I don't know. I just I, I didn't really like that idea. I said, no, you should find a work and you know have it some, be something that people want to buy and you know that creates jobs and you know there's a whole economy around this, right? Uh, but yeah, the whole industry seemed very um, grant oriented. So, uh, so that was some of the discussions I had with Roseway. I said, well, I'm not interested in grants, um, but I, I would like to set up a marketing plan. And, and they were very open. Uh, you know, they said, okay, well, you know, uh, some of the things you're thinking of doing have, aren't really done in the publishing industry or haven't been done. Uh, but I think by and large, it's, it's been quite successful, uh, you know, following, I guess, my, uh, my business side, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of promoting the book and that or trying to get the word out a little bit. So you know, it, it definitely wasn't what I thought. I, I'm, you know, I think most people will write a book thinking, okay, I'm going to write a book, it's going to be a good work, and then I'm going to find a publisher and then I'm going to be famous, <laughs> you know, a famous millionaire, right? <laughs> and that's just not the case. I mean, it's it's crazy how you know the the big the really big publishing giants they control the uh, the shelf space in the stores, right? So in, independent publishers, I mean, they really have to fight and argue and to get to get one or two titles on you know in some of the big bookstores or in that, right? So right. so a lot of my you know um, processes have involved you know the more independent bookstores and that you know because you can talk directly to the owner operator and say okay well this is kind of what i'd like to do to get the word out about my book right so right right so i kind of had to rewrite how i guess how the whole system works a bit and it was really good because i was able to learn quickly from roseway uh, because they're a smaller independent publisher they're able to take a lot of time explain how things would normally work and they were open to doing things differently yeah yeah 
Now this gray eyes, I mean, this is this is just one concept, right? I mean, this is just one aspect. And I because I, I think if, I, if my memory serves me correct, we were talking about a series of books that you were going to write. Yes. About this very, and it's all on this very same topic. And the, the, is it dealing with different aspects of of that uh, of that tumultuous time for those people, or? Oh, well, a little bit. Different. Well, the book uh, the book takes place, uh, you know, before the residential school era. But what it is I'm trying to do is to um, communicate some of the fundamental uh, original beliefs of First Nations people, ones that are, you know, fairly common or fairly uniform. Uh, we have something called the Seven Sacred Teachings, and mm-hmm. uh, that's something that's really fundamental to to the way we, um, I guess, live our our lives. So the first book is actually uh, about the teaching of respect, uh, and originally I actually wanted to call it Grey Eyes and the Teaching of the Buffalo, and uh, because, uh, you know, we have animals associated with the seven sacred teachings, we call them the seven sacred animals, and so I wanted to write seven books, one to give each of the seven teachings, but the story will continue as a, as a continuing saga with the same uh, characters, I guess, kind of continuing on, I guess, a life's journey uh-huh. and, and having new challenges. So the first book, um, with respect, or with to do with respect, um, what we think of when we're taught by our elders is that to learn a particular concept, you also have to look at its opposite. And uh, in, in our culture, the opposite of respect is jealousy. So uh, in jealousy, uh, what you're doing is you're, first of all, being disrespectful of gifts given to another person, but you're also disrespecting gifts that you have been given as an individual, you know, so if you're mm-hmm. jealous for of someone for being, you know, smarter than you or, you know, more attractive than you or something, you're you're kind of doing yourself a disservice, right? You're undervaluing Very your own intelligence so. or your own beauty, right? Um, right. So we, we also look at things from two different perspectives uh, in terms of at the individual level, but also at the group level or the social level. So jealousy at a social level manifests itself differently, too, as, uh, you know, internal politics, uh, nepotism, and corruption. And uh, the book addresses this concept of nepotism as well, where, you know, if you, the idea un- under the teaching is that if you, if somebody gets, uh, say, a job or a task, um, you know, that, that was meant for somebody else because of who they know or, you know, who their family members are, um, right. two things are going to happen. One thing is that the person who is meant for that vital function is now displaced. And so I think in our society, I, I, I see that as kind of a root cause of our homelessness situation, you know, in Canada. And then also the other thing that happens is that the person who does get the job who wasn't qualified for it or didn't get it through means of their own merit uh, is now going to underserve society by not being able to complete the tasks or do the job right. uh, as well as the person who, who you know, would have been meant for that post. Um, so that's kind of what the book is about, and the idea is that the uh, our, our ancestors, our First Nations ancestors, you know, we, we have this um, belief in the First Nations community that they lived in this utopian world where nothing ever went wrong. And to me, I think that does our ancestors a disservice because they had to survive in one of the harshest and most unforgiving climates in the world. Uh, so in order right. to do that, I mean, they, they had to have specific processes and a very sophisticated and organized social structure uh, in order to survive as a group. Um, so what I want to do is be able to throw some of our modern-day problems at our ancestors to show, based on their traditional model of governance and that, how they would, you know, solve or, or um, you know, address some of those issues. Because I really think that that's, you know, in our society what we've really lost 
is that we've gotten away from fundamentals by complicating uh, everyday aspects of our life, you know. Uh, and if we kind of get back a little bit to fundamental beliefs, um, then, you know, I think things can uh, go a little bit more smoothly for everybody. Yeah. Nice. Now, what do you, th- what do you, what would you, uh, something just occurred to me. I mean, this, this, uh, this book or this, this range of books that, you know, that you're contemplating finishing up. I mean, it, it seems to me that it might, um, might be well used in the education system itself among First Nations Indians, making them f- completely aware. And I know you have a you had a, a charity of some sort where you were. I remember I remember you were actually uh, putting some books into the system free, uh, courtesy of some fundraising you were doing. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and, and what you what you think the future of this book in a in a in the educational system or curriculum might might potentially have. Well, okay. The um, the initiative was called Gray Eyes in the Classroom, and uh, I did a social media, I guess, fundraising campaign mm-hmm. through Indiegogo. And uh, basically, what it was is when I first started talking to First Nations educators about the book, uh, they they all said they wanted it. And I mean, I thought at that time, like, oh, good, I'm going to be you know famous or something, right? <laughs> and then a lot of them were telling me, um, yeah, I'd like it, but we don't have any budget. And so what I found is that a lot of them had been uh, teaching the same books for 20-plus years because the only monies they had available to them were to replace the absolute most tattered copies each year. Mm -hmm. So digging a little deeper, I found that uh, in 1985, under Bill C-31, which, you know, gave uh, equal uh, rights for women under the Indian Act or, you know, or wanted to, I guess, they capped the education funding on First Nations to 2%. Now, throughout most of the 90s and the early part of uh, this millennia, uh, that was outpaced by inflation. So what ended up happening now is that uh, First Nation schools, which are federally funded, um, are funded approximately 40 to 60 percent less than provincial public schools here in Canada. So, um, you know, so basically what you're looking at is half the amount of money on in a school is spent on a First Nation is what you would normally see, uh, you know, at a public school anywhere else. Um, so that creates a really big problem. Uh, one of the major issues we have in my First Nation is uh, because you're only paying teachers the minimum, a lot of times you get a whole new crop of teachers every year that are fresh out of, uh, you know, universities, no yeah. teaching experience whatsoever, and they're really just there on the reserve to get one or two years' experience till they can get a real yeah. job in the public system. Yeah. Now, what it does for the students is the students uh, never have that teacher to bond with, where they know right. that this teacher cares about their education. They All they know is this is a new face, and it'll be gone by June. Wow. Um, and, and, and a lot of cases, too, uh, some of the teachers, if there is an empty post, they will leave partway through the year leaving the, the school often with nothing. In my home community of uh, Nishisweasi, uh, they're actually doing school in two shifts right now where, because the school's at double capacity, where the young children will start very early in the morning and end kind of in just after lunch, and then the older students, the 7 to 12s, will come in after lunch and be in class till 8 o'clock or so. And the result is that a lot of times these kids come home after school, which would normally be about 4 o'clock, except now it's 9 or 10 o'clock, they've still got a lot of energy. So you got kids wandering around at all hours of the night on the reserve, you know, right. one, two, three in the morning, uh, causing yep. all kinds of disruptions, and it just really creates this cascade effect socially in the community. 
So, so that's kind of the, the reality of the scenario um, that they're dealing with. So I want to do a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, it's a huge issue that I couldn't tackle on my own, but the, the concept of kind of become the change you wish to see, I said, well, what, what little can I do? So I, I put the word out there, like, look, you know, I can. I negotiated with my publisher and with our uh, with our book printing company, Hignal Book Printing, um, mm-hmm. to do a special run of Gray Eyes, uh, kind of at cost. I see. So uh, we, we, you know, basically what we did is we were able to kind of bypass contracts that we had with, um, I guess, exclusivity contracts with a distribution company, and just mm-hmm. produce a special run just for the schools. And we managed to raise enough to um, buy a thousand copies of Gray Eyes to distribute in sets of twenty-five to forty First Nation schools. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and depending just where in the country we receive the donations, that is, you know, we try and match them up to the nearest uh, First Nation available. Sure. So uh, I'm I'm kind of still in that process right now. It's actually been very difficult because. Uh, many of the First Nations, uh, the, their classes don't go up to grade 12. Uh, a good example is in Manitoba. There's 64 First Nations and only 14 high schools amongst them. Oh. So so that's kind of the reality of the of the situation that I, I don't think most Canadians are aware of. And when you look at the, uh, the dropout rate, the dropout rate in some parts of the country, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, especially on reserve, is in the 60% neighborhood. 60% of children never make it to grade 12 in the First Nations community. Now, being that First Nations are the largest growing demographic in Canada, this is going to create a huge, you know, social problem for all of us, you know, if we don't right. decide to address it immediately. Wow. Wow, wow. Yeah. Man, you are so well-spoken on this topic, uh, Frank. <laughs> now, uh, my next question is not just uh, loudmouth schnook uh, Christians that are giving you some criticism. You're yeah. receiving some from the First Nations about oh, yes. the portrayal of the ceremonies in Grey Eyes. Yep. Uh, tell us about that, uh, what the ceremonies and why, why are they why are they uh, giving you some heck about that. Well, I, I get it on two fronts. Uh, the first is from, uh, I guess, people who are traditional, uh, who follow the traditional First Nation spirituality, and um, they have this concept that certain things are too sacred to be written down or uh, videotaped or, uh, I guess, otherwise recorded. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I actually found and, and did some research and talked to elders about where this whole thing came from, because uh, what I was thinking is that if I went, you know, and built a time machine, you know, and uh, decided to go back 600 years into the past, pre-European contact, and I brought my iPhone with me, and I went to a First Nation ceremony, and I talked to the elder running the ceremony and said, hey, do you mind if I record this? Um, I'm guessing that elder would say, you know what, do whatever you want, I'm really busy here. <laughs> you know, that's probably the response <laughs> I would get from my Cree elders, you know, just knowing the culture. <laughs> So I thought, okay, so it had to be after that that this taboo came about, about not recording, uh, you know, not talking about or, or not taking photographs or writing about ceremonies. And what I found is that it actually came from the cultural ban era. Around 1911, uh, laws were passed outlawing First Nation ceremonies. Uh, there was a potlatch ban in B.C., there was a Sundance ban in, uh, on the plains, both in Canada and the U.S. Um, basically what happened was that if you... Uh, performed or attended a First Nation ceremony, you were breaking Canadian law. And uh, basically what started happening is that elders would tell people, don't talk about it, don't write anything down, and don't take any pictures, because anybody in the photograph would be arrested if the Indian agent were to get their hands on the picture. 
Oh, wow. So that is <laughs> wow. where that taboo came from. Now, now, to me, what the result is, is that people who are looking for our ceremonies, you know, wanting to reconnect with their culture, maybe they went to residential school or they grew up in the foster care system, they can't find it because it's so underground and hidden that they, they never see it and they just assume that it's very much extinct. Um, so I thought, okay, that's that's a very bad thing. So some of these people, you know, will contact me and they'll say, you know, oh, you're not supposed, you know, my elder always said you're not supposed to take pictures, you're not supposed to write anything, and I'll say, yeah, do you know why? <laughs> because they're worried you'll get arrested. <laughs> well, uh, you know, things change under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982, right? Where now you are allowed to attend First Nation ceremonies. I mean, it's still frowned upon <laughs> socially, I guess, in a lot of ways. But uh, but I just looked at what the result was. What did this? Ta- what, how was this taboo serving our community? And I really felt that it wasn't. So I decided to break with that tradition and say, okay, no, I am going to write about this openly, because people, you know, a lot of my readers who attend these ceremonies or who are looking for them, um, you know, the, the, they they want to talk about it. It is supposed to be part of our our daily lives or our culture. I mean, and and just looking at the comparison, I mean. How many movies do you see that will have, you know, a wedding taking place in a church or a funeral service taking place in a church or or some kind of, you know, kind of just casual religion, you know, displayed on the screen um, where you almost never see a native ceremony uh, on film or depicted on film without, you know, people protesting in the whole nine yards. Um, So that's kind of what I looked at was that. So I find either it's people who are traditional and they're kind of angry about it because they have these, what they believe to be their traditional teachings, uh, or the other people will be ones who um, don't know much about the um, the specifics. You know, I guess, uh, I, don't, I don't know how you describe these people, but uh, often they grew up outside of the traditional culture and they've learned bits and pieces. And, uh, you know, they, they get mad, um, I believe, in, in learning how, how little they actually know. And they yeah. take it personally, and I think it sometimes it's uh, it's pointed at me in in kind of a in kind of a wrong way. And so I try to be patient with everybody who who does this. I'll hear them out, and I'll say, okay, well, thank yeah. you for sharing with me. Uh, I want you to know that my <laughs> my viewpoint very much differs from yours, but I respect your opinion. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, yeah, they fall into that category of just just knowing enough to be dangerous. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that's exactly how it happens. Yeah, so. Yeah. So, oh, it's, it's really funny too because I'll I'll always uh, say, well, why don't you write a book and uh, publish it, and uh, people can decide for themselves. I'll I'll help you promote your book. You know, they, there you they, go. Oh, and they just fly right off the handle, right? So. <laughs> I had a boss who used to say that. Uh, if I ever tell you thanks for the feedback, I'm basically telling you to piss off. And <laughs> that's, that's basically it, eh? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is, uh, you've gone, this is more than just writing a book. This is like uh, uh, doing research on a community, uh, getting feedback from uh, other religions in your community, from your own community, uh uh, there's a lot of action around this one. This is book. a mission. This is this is not a this is not a book. I look at right. this whole thing and I look at this as a mission. And you yeah. must have somewhere in the in your heart of hearts there must be something that's driving you in that manner. There's gotta be, I figure. Yeah, is well I, I think I think the key really was because I grew up um 
without it. Like I, I think I grew up. I'm, I'm you know a second and third generation residential school survivor. So uh, so my family members, uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, even some of my cousins attended residential school. And right. um, as a result, I was uh, kind of robbed of my culture and language growing up. Um, I was actually for a while uh, forbidden to be around the Cree language. Uh, the idea being that if we spoke Cree, and you know, we could be sent to residential school. Um, so I, I think just uh, you know the fact that I didn't get to learn many of these ceremonies till fairly later in life, till my kind of late teens, um, it, it kind it really bothered me that uh, you know that this you know we just kind of came so close to really just losing it, and uh, and I feel like you know okay now that I've learned uh, the traditional culture and the traditional teaching of the medicine wheel. I do have a bit of an obligation to share and to teach what I've learned. So um, for me, ideally, that you know, children and my children, you know, can grow up knowing about these things or being taught about these things, and you know, just having that freedom to choose, you know, what they, what they want, to, which avenue they want right. to pursue, I guess, in terms of their beliefs. Right. But the the more I kind of learn about even world religions or belief systems, uh, you know, I, I don't really focus on the differences. I, I see the similarities. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, the concept of the golden rule, you know, do unto others, um, I right. think that is a very universal concept across all cultures. I mean, everybody, uh, it seems like everybody in the world has this concept of, hey, if you, you wouldn't like it, they wouldn't like it. You know, if you would yeah. like it, they probably want it too. Um, yeah. And so just kind of sharing that and saying that, you know, our point of view is as valid as any of the, you know, belief systems in the world. And, uh, you know, and also being tolerant enough to to make way when somebody has a, a slightly different point of view or wants to believe something else. Yeah. In the First Nations community, um, I would say that we're predominantly Christian, uh, but of course, that's broken up, you know, secularly into different <laughs> different yeah. groups. You know, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, uh, Mennonite, whatever else. Um, I have many First Nations friends who are Muslim, who, who practice the Islamic faith. Um, Baha'i. Really, very, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah and, and people aren't aware of that. That there's, you know, this big diversity, right? And yeah. and, and I think that's that's a good thing, you know, that we we are able to make some of these uh, linkages or connect with people at different levels. Because I mean. Really, it's a, a fundamental freedom in Canada to be able to choose your faith or to decide what you want to believe in and what you want to pass on to your children and to allow your neighbor to have you know whatever choice they have as well and, and live in a tolerant society. So maybe a little bit different from our neighbors to the south, you know, where you get more of the melting pot thing where everybody should just become whatever the average ideal is supposed to be, you know, whichever slant that might mm-hmm. take. Uh, I think, you know, fundamental to Canadians is that ability to maintain our cultural mosaic. Yeah, well, I think the uh, the idea of the elders being the go-to people, you know, for the wisdom and for the legacy, I mean, that's prevalent in quite a few cultures. It's not it's not just within the, uh, nor, you know, the North American Indian. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Yep. I think Europe, you know, uh, I can think of all kinds of places where, you know, you're, you know, the you you take the grandchildren and you park them with granddad and grandmother and you know yep. park them there for two hours and they tell them about the world, right? Oh yeah, and and you know, um, you know, First Nations people, uh, whether they're I think almost fifty percent of us live in urban centers. I mean, Toronto's got a huge uh, First Nations population. Yeah. Um, and I think amongst First Nations people, uh, you know, one of the things we'll do when we meet each other is we'll ask, you know, where are you from? 
and, mm-hmm. and the answer isn't Toronto most of the time, right? It's, you know, <laughs> usually this or that First Nation. Right. And, uh, you know, and people thought this is a unique cultural thing. And I said, no, 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 because when I talk to my, uh, you know, non-Native friends, um, you know, and they start talking about their background, it seems like most Canadians, especially multi-generational Canadians, can usually trace their lineage back to some farm somewhere in Canada, whether it's in southern Ontario, parts of Quebec, or in the prairies, you know, Manitoba, wow. Saskatchewan. So I said, wherever that farm is, and whoever is still on that farm, whether it's Cousin Joe or whether it's your grandpa, uh, that is the very same connection we have to our reserves, where we know that's where our elders are, that's where our story begins. Right. So uh, that's always tell corporations and that, you know, who want to engage with First Nations. They say, well, why do these trappers and elders have so much clout? I said, well, if you want to do some big project and you're not talking to the farmers, you're getting the very same thing because some of those farmers' grandkids are big-time lawyers in Toronto. So you are going to have a big battle on your hands when you decide you want to tear the place apart without, you know, giving people adequate notice or consultation, right? Right, right. So, so that's kind of the, what I try to get across is, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot more ways that we are the same than, than, than different. We just have to be able yeah. to find those similarities and make those yeah. connections. Are you are you on your are you on your way to writing the book too or yeah what, I've actually the... um I I've outlined in detail all seven books um so okay. it's a whole continuing saga uh you know the conflict I guess between the gray eyes and the red eyes the red eyes have mm-hmm. the same abilities but they use them for evil um right. they're, they're, you know the whole concept of the magic in the novel is really um, a metaphor for leadership in the community, right? So, uh, you know, the gray-eyed people, they, um, you know, they use their magic or they use their ability in order to help others and to help their community. And we Mm -hmm. have people like that. You know, I really feel like police officers and paramedics and firemen and teachers and nurses, I mean, those are kind of the unsung heroes of our society. They basically get up every day and they use what charisma, what ability, what education they have to try and make everybody's life better. Then on the other hand, you have the uh, the red eyes who have the exact same abilities, you know, so whether it's education, charisma, whatever else, but they use it primarily to help themselves. And I think we know we have some of those characters, uh, many of them in Ottawa, <laughs> yeah. you know, who, uh, you know, you know who, who mainly or primarily use their gifts to, to help themselves and not, you know, their community or society as a whole. Um, so, you know, that, so that's kind of the, uh, the metaphor that happens in the book. And then that's always, that's always going to be a continuing, yeah. uh, yeah. saga. Spoken, in, in spoken like a guy, spoken like a guy who stepped up to one or two politicians and asked them for a handout. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. I think I know I've, uh, I, I've, uh, I, I try to stay out of the politics where possible, but, <laughs> but I definitely, and when I, when I do talk to leaders, I mean, not just in the Aboriginal community, but also in the, uh, in the mainstream, I, I, I will often ask them what what kind of leader they see themselves as. Oh, you know, I said, yeah. Question. So I've actually have a yeah. few members of parliament who have read Gray Eyes, and and you know, and they and they'll email me and say, oh, I just loved your book, and you know, this is what I thought, yeah. and that. And I said, and then I'll say, now ask yourself when you know when you're sitting in parliament, you know, are you acting as a gray eye or as a red eye? Yeah. So I won't mention names. And if you're a gray anything. eye, come come over here and help me, right? Yeah, or help us, right? Just help, help society us, as a right. whole, right? Yeah, so, right, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Now, wow. enough about you, Frank, and your novel. Do I remember uh, you talking about your father? Your father was a well-known, sharp guy as well, or is yeah, that he's a 51-year-old brain? Yeah, he just recently retired from the RCMP. 
Um, oh. I'd actually been begging him to retire for the last 10 years. Uh, he, he actually served in the RCMP for about 35 years. And I think wow. he was eligible for pension after about 25. So the accountant side of me was like, Dad, you know, you got to retire <laughs> and do right. some consulting work or something. And right? You're working so, for free now. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, he did retire, but he's uh, taken over um, a uh, tribal council police force in Saskatchewan. Oh, so wow. I said, so your retirement from being a police officer is to become a police chief? I mean, <laughs> you call that a retirement, eh? But, uh, yeah, so he's. I think he's just the kind of guy who uh, he, he is the job, you know, so he couldn't introduce himself as uh, a consultant. He's got to introduce himself as an officer. So, right. but, uh, but, yeah, no, he's had quite a distinguished career. He actually was um, uh, head of security for the uh, governor general, um, he actually wow. did two trips to uh, Afghanistan with the Governor General, diplomatic missions during the uh, the conflict and that, and kind of yeah. traveled all over the world on various diplomatic missions and that. Um, he actually worked in, uh, I guess, some international forums on, uh, you know, in the, especially in the drug wars and that. Uh, I know he did uh, some major conferences out in Colombia and that, talking about, uh, you know, international, um, you know, drug trade issues and whatnot and partnerships with other police forces around the around the world and that so so he, he made quite a name for himself and uh you know and especially as being a first nations person you know um climbing up through the ranks and that mm-hmm. and you know one of the things he actually taught me that's really served me me well in my career goals and everything i did is i always asked him about that you know like how did you climb as high as you climbed you know given what what are supposed to be all these kind of racial barriers and that yeah and he said you know what he goes uh, one of the things i did is i'd never take a token position he goes, because any time they said, well, we need the native officer to do this, uh, he, right. he would step back, right? Uh, he right. goes, because most of the guys or, you know, ladies who took those positions are still in them now, right? right. They, they still need that person, that kind of brown face sitting there. And, and I carried that throughout my career life. You know, if somebody's saying, well, yeah, and we're looking for, you know, a native person to serve in this particular role, I would say, well, you, you found the wrong guy. And yeah. I, I would go somewhere I'd like to be hired based on my, I'm a, my I'm ability. I'm Right. Yeah, and well, and merit, yeah. right? It's got to be merit-based, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, you know, it's the same thing, you know, like I mean about the teaching of respect and that. Well, if I'm taking a job just because I'm Native, well, you know, there might be somebody who might not be Native who'd actually be better suited for that job. Yeah. So saying that you want to hire based on something Good like point. that is, you know, is, not, is not, to me, the greatest thing to do. So, um, so yeah, and that's kind of what a, I guess the major life lesson I learned from him was to was to do that to always try and uh, you know work based on your own that's merit. That. That's I think it's really served me well you know, in life. Yeah. Did he get picked on because your dad was a police officer? Um, no, not really. Um, you dirty dog. You, you definitely people would uh, sometimes not tell you their secrets. You didn't get invited to the best parties. Yeah, no, you didn't. That was uh, that was something that did happen. But uh, but yeah, no, you know, it, it didn't really work very well. I mean, me and my brothers were usually. Um, I, I have five siblings or five brothers and and two sisters, wow. so we had a really large family. So getting picked on for any reason was just never a good idea because there wasn't just one of me. There was always four or five, right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, that was it, it, it did come up once in a while, like, oh, well, you know, Frank will tell us. But you know what the reality of uh, police officers' kids are is that we're sometimes we're some of the most least well-behaved kids out there. So it's pretty surprising how much trouble – Cop kids I've met a bunch of pastors' so. kids like that too. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because you get the worst punishment when you get home, but uh, you know, <laughs> right. it's, uh, 
Yeah, you, you think because your dad's a police officer, you know how to destroy the evidence or something, eh? But, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, this has been so much fun. Uh, Frank, before we got on the air, we said, okay, let's try for 40, 45 minutes, and we're almost an hour here. And oh, we could boy. Probably go on, we could probably go another hour. Uh, you're just so well-spoken about this topic and passionate about it. And uh, so... I'm sorry to almost let you go and get back to accounting, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to pay the bills, right? So yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. You're right. a, he's a, no, he's a colorful guy. You see that you're. It's not you're not storytelling. You know, you're actually you're telling the truth when you yeah, think well, about it. Yeah, I'm trying to live Anyone it. That, you know, it's kind of what I think yeah. of trying to trying to live it. Yeah, you're telling the truth, and I think the truth, you know, it resonates with people, and people want to hear more of that. And I think the you know the more the more we evolve, we you know I, I know from a my own perspective as a mature person, I want to know the truth more often than not, yeah. right? Because I've got very little time left. I'm not interested in lies. <laughs> I yeah. really do want to know the truth. And I think there are more people out there realizing that you know that time is a currency that we can ill afford to waste, mm-hmm. you know, and so we might as well, we might as well you know spend it wisely and and you know listen to the listen to the words of someone like yourself and and the people you know the stories of the people uh, behind your stories you know that that make it very very unique it's been a pleasure frank uh speaking with you even better uh hearing about uh your book uh i want to wish you the best uh with um, the entire range of books um, let's stay in touch for sure, and uh, I'll certainly oh, keep definitely. reaching out to you from time to time and see how things are moving along, and um, uh, look forward to uh, our next chat. Cheers. Excellent. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.